You can open your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. You know, you'll know from last week, I said that I was preaching and I had a throbbing headache and it like didn't go away all day. And that's the excuse I used for why I made some offhand remark about how all Christian music is terrible. So, <laughs> so I apologize for that. I don't have a headache. I won't say anything like that today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my notes. I shouldn't say that because now if I say anything, you're going to say, he actually had that in his notes. No, I'm going to try to stick to my notes. Uh, today's message is going to be a little bit different in that uh, we're, we're going to learn about the church today. We're going to learn about the church. And, you know, you're, you're kind of trained as you're preparing sermons. You know, you want to come, you want to understand what the fallen condition focus is. You want to understand uh, what's the human condition we're dealing with that this text is going to give us a solution for, right? This is how you're trained to preach. And what I would just say this morning is we just need to learn about the church. We, we need to learn who we are. We need to learn our identity as the church of Jesus Christ. And so I hope you'll stick with me through this. It's going to be a little bit different for some of you. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 18. We're going to be in Matthew 16. We're going to be in John 17, primarily, and uh, a couple other places. And so uh, Justin's going to help us out with the projector, so you don't have to flip everywhere in the Bible. But if you start at Matthew 18 and put a bookmark in Matthew 16, you'll be well served with those two passages. Matthew 18 and 16. This is not unrelated to anything we've, we've been talking about recently. This is a a continuation of a series we've done on forgiveness. We took a break from the series on forgiveness to speak on fathers last week to to focus on God as our Heavenly Father. We come back to that series on forgiveness and really where we stopped last time, remember, in Matthew chapter 18, what Jesus has done is He gives us direction. and says, this is how I want my church to operate. And he focuses on forgiveness, and he talks about restoration and repentance. And what he does in this very first, I'm sorry, the, the, the second of his only two references to the church during his earthly ministry, he gives us instruction in how to deal with a sinning brother who is unrepentant. And you know, I come into the pulpit and I see visitors here today and so on, and I know that we probably have non-Christians here, and, and what a message for you to come into to hear on what we're going to call church discipline. And say, hey, you know what, if you don't get it, if you don't appreciate it, please come back next week <laughs> for part two. <laughs> uh, but Jesus gives us instruction for the church and how to deal with a sinning brother who's unrepentant. And, uh, well, let's just read it. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And again, Jesus is laying forth just clear directives for his church. And again, it's his church. Clear directives on how to deal with a sinning, unrepentant brother in the midst. And it's important for us to say sinning and unrepentance. Because you know who's guilty of sinning? All of us. 
This is that brother who sins and is a pattern of sin, fails to repent of that sin even after being confronted. This is the situation. And so Jesus says if a brother sins against a fellow believer, he's to be confronted. Why? Because you want to gain your brother. Jesus will not allow there to be ongoing broken relationships among believers in his church. So it's got to be dealt with one way or another. And so approach your brother and confront him and say, we need to make this right. If he refuses to hear, then Jesus says, well, you don't just drop it. This has to escalate because, again, what we're learning from this passage is that Jesus does not tolerate ongoing uh, unrepentant sin in the church. What we also learn is that no one should be permitted to claim to be a believer while continuing in a pattern of habitual sin uh, after being confronted, uh, digging in the heels and continuing on in that sin. And so Jesus says it must escalate here. Brother won't hear you, so then take one or two witnesses with you. Take others who can also appeal, implore lovingly to this brother or sister who's continuing in sin. Confront them over their sin. Remind them of their salvation. Remind them of their calling as Christians. Remind them of what it is to to live a life worthy of the gospel. And compel them to repent. But what if they don't repent? Jesus says it has to be escalated even further. One or two things are going to happen here. Either this brother is going to repent of his sin with sorrow, genuine repentance. He's going to be fully restored to the church. The love of the church is going to be affirmed to this brother. He's going to be fully restored and continue on in the fellowship. Or he's going to dig in his heels. And he may reveal something about his heart and about his salvation. And so... Jesus says this then must escalate, and then this situation must be brought to the church. And who's the church? The church is us, collectively, the gathering of believers. And so it ought to be brought to the church. There's a reason why it ought to be brought to the church. And this is what we see in verse 18. We say, why why would this be brought to the congregation? Why would this be brought to the the whole church? It, It should be brought to the whole church because Jesus has given the entire gathered body of believers a certain authority and responsibility. An authority and responsibility to take action in such a scenario. So in verse 18, he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Who's he talking about in verse 18? He is talking to the church. The church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he says, Where two of you agree on earth toward uh, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then in verse 20, he says, what's the context here? This is the gathered church. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so when the church gathers together, agreeing on an action to be taken against an unrepentant brother or sister, Jesus is saying that the church is acting with the authority and approval and affirmation of Jesus himself. This earthly Judgment, Jesus says, has heavenly affirmation. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. With that, we understand that Jesus has given the gathered church both authority and responsibility where the kingdom of heaven is concerned. And we'll see that explained. In the scenario here in Matthew 18, it is the authority to what? To make a declarative statement regarding the genuineness of an unrepentant brother's faith. That is, the church actually has authority and responsibility to say, here we have somebody before us who's determined to live in sin. Won't heed 
the intervention of fellow brothers and sisters, will not respond with repentance. This one who professes faith in Jesus Christ is showing no evidence of that profession, is showing no evidence of genuine salvation, even when pressed and tried and prayed for and implored, still no evidence of repentance. And so the church, according to Jesus Christ, now has authority to make a declarative statement. Uh, This one, we cannot affirm their profession of faith. And so Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What he's saying is, remove them from your company. Uh, Don't include them in your fellowship, as we're going to see. And so I admit this morning that that sounds serious, very serious. I mean, it's a serious claim to say that the church has the authority to make declarative statements regarding the genuineness of somebody's faith. And some of you this morning are saying, wait a second, you don't know my heart. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me, right? That's generally our knee-jerk reaction to a claim like this. But I hope by the end of this message you'll understand that the church has been given authority and responsibility. The church, the gathered, the gathering of believers, and we're going to define the church in a little bit, has been given authority and responsibility by Jesus Christ himself to make such statements. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to explore just what the authority of the gathered congregation is, just what the authority of the church is, and where this authority comes from. So now, we're in Matthew 18. Flip back to Matthew 16. Because in Matthew chapter 16, that's where we actually find Jesus' first mention of the church. And as we read Matthew 16, starting in verse 15, I want you to listen for a phrase that you've already heard in Matthew 18. Listen for a phrase that you've already heard in Matthew 18. Matthew 16, 15. Jesus says to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, did you catch it? It wasn't too hard to catch, was it? The phrase that we see in both Matthew 18 and Matthew 16 is what? That they will be able to bind on earth what's bound in heaven, or whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Same phrase. What's the indication that whatever Jesus is dealing with in Matthew 16, we actually see implemented in Matthew 18? With this, we understand that this passage in Matthew 16, in which Jesus mentions the church for the very first time, is essential to understanding what we've already seen when it comes to church discipline. Before we get to that, I want you to think about what's actually happening in this passage in Matthew 16. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And what follows is an awesome confession by Peter. I mean, Peter, who represents, I believe, a consensus of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a seminal moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. This is incredibly significant. It should not be underestimated. As we're going to see, if Jesus' church would be built, and that's what he says here in Matthew 16, he's going to build his church. If Jesus' church were to be built, it would be built upon the individuals who make the very same confession that Peter makes in this passage. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to understand just how significant that was, and, and I understand this morning we're flipping here and flipping there and flipping somewhere else. I understand that. 
but it's necessary, and I hope you can see the connection in a moment. But to understand how significant this confession of Peter's was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, who is Peter? That poor fisherman from Galilee, uneducated, okay, and he follows Jesus. And now, at this point in Matthew chapter 16, he's making one of the grandest confessions that anybody could ever make. Where does this come from? What does it mean? Uh, How is he able to make this confession? Well, for this, we're going to have to go to John 17. John 17. And John 17, starting in verse 1, we're only going to read about eight verses. I mean, we're, we're looking at some, some landmark texts here. Matthew 18, Matthew 16, John 17. In John 17, you probably already know it, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus prayed this particular prayer in John 17 at this particular time in his ministry because he had fulfilled everything that the Father had given him to do on earth short of the cross. Everything the Father had given him to do during his earthly ministry is done short of the crucifixion. And this is why he prays this prayer. He could not have prayed it at any other time. So he prays in John 17, verse 1. It says, He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus is saying, Father, you've given me the authority over the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I can declare who can be saved and how they're to be saved, and I have the authority to give eternal life and to usher them into the kingdom. Uh, Father, you've given me this authority to give what? Eternal life to all whom you have given him. You want to do a study in John 17? Just focus on that phrase, given him, and see where that takes you. And this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. Now listen, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You say, wait a second, he hasn't died on the cross yet. But he says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now listen, now he's going to explain in just what sense he's accomplished all the work that God had given him to do. Because I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus says, I've accomplished all the work that you've given me to do. What is that work? I've received those whom you have given me. I have given them your word. And he could say that his work was accomplished. Why? Because in verse 7, they know that everything you have given me is from you. And then in verse 8, they received those words and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. As far as Jesus was concerned, he could pray mission accomplished because that small group of disciples have come to a place where they knew he was the Son of God. They knew all of his power and all of his authority came from the Father. In other words, they were able to confess that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus could pray mission accomplished because that small band of disciples had come to believe in who he was. Jesus could say mission accomplished because as far as his earthly ministry was concerned, uh, he has what? 
fulfilled those primary purposes of receiving the people whom the Father had given him, teaching them, performing miracles before them, revealing his divine nature to them, revealing the nature of the Father to them, guarding them so that they could not be lost. But what we also learn is that the measure of the success of Jesus' earthly ministry was that those whom the Father had given him would come to confess that he'd come from the Father, that all of his power and all of his authority was from the Father. And so Jesus prays, mission accomplished. Why? The disciples understand he's the Son of God. The disciples understand he's come from the Father. The words that he's spoken, again, from the Father. This is so essential because what's happening here, this belief, this faith that Jesus is the Son of God, and this confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, is the very foundation upon which Jesus is going to build his church. The very foundation upon which Jesus is going to build his church. So now, back to Matthew 16. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And this takes place before John 17. Peter responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, you did not receive this of your own will, but the Father's revealed it to you. That's true of anybody who confesses Christ as the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're Peter, and on on this rock I will build my church. Now, this morning, 2,000 years later, we are the church. The foundation upon which the church is built is on this confession of Christ as the Son of the living God. And if you're part of the church this morning, it's because you've come uh, to confess that very same thing by the grace of God. This is the very confession upon which Jesus desired to elicit from his disciples so that the foundation could be laid for his church. Now, look at Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 19, he says to Peter, and I believe to the other disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's authority. That's responsibility. It's authority and responsibility that's being passed to those who confess Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Specifically here to the disciples who would soon be called the apostles. The foundation's ready. So Jesus could say, my work on earth is done. The apostles were those who were entrusted with authority from Jesus, and Jesus calls these in Matthew 19, the keys of the kingdom. Keys able to unlock and to lock, to bind and to loose. And in what realm? The kingdom of heaven. The apostles, having confessed Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God, have now received an authority from Jesus over the kingdom of heaven. The apostles then are going to be foundational to the building of Jesus' church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is, this is us. This is us. This is written to a local church in Ephesus. This is us. We are the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This morning, this community of believers, this fellowship is built upon the foundation of that apostolic confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. And so built upon the foundation of the apostles and built upon that apostolic confession, 
what we're going to show is that we also, as the gathered church, now possess the very same authority which Jesus Christ entrusted to the apostles. The keys of the kingdom and the ability to bind and to loose in regard to the kingdom of heaven uh, given to the apostles is now entrusted to the local church, which is built upon the foundation laid by them. Hopefully you can see that come together. The point is that believers collectively are the household of God. Believers collectively uh, are built upon the foundation of the apostles. The believers collectively, when we gather like this collectively... We are the household of God, the holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling place for God. So when Jesus chose to build his church, he prepared the right foundation. Through the apostles, through that wonderful confession of Christ as the son of the living God, so that what? Those fickle and fearful men who first came to Jesus would eventually become bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the son of God. They had become those bearing the gospel that Jesus is the only source of salvation. These men would be able to go forth and stand with the keys of the kingdom, with the authority to bind and loose, and declare to others what they must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the last main passage I want you to turn to today. But Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I want you to see what happened to Peter. Peter, who declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, making that grand confession. Jesus saying that Peter and the other disciples would be the foundation upon which he would build his church. In Acts chapter 2, we get to see this building project begin. And I'm not going to read the passage, but I just want you to follow along in your text if you start in verse 14. This is about 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, Jewish Feast of Pentecost. In Jerusalem, 120 disciples gathered there. They're awaiting the Spirit whom Jesus had promised. Suddenly, you know the story, the house is shaken. All those who are there are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a rushing sound of the rushing mighty wind. And what? There's a miraculous sign. They spoke in tongues. And from the context, you understand that those tongues were languages uh, that the men from different nations could understand. But even more amazing than the rushing mighty wind and even more amazing than the sign of tongues was the boldness of Peter as he began to preach to the thousands of gathered Jews. Look at verse 14. Peter demands the attention of the crowd. Give ear, give ear to my words. Now remember, this is timid Peter who just in recent memory has denied Christ uh, three times. He stands up before the thousands of gathered Jews and says, give ear to my words. He claims that the miracle that the crowd had just witnessed was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But then he says this in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, which is remarkable because the basis upon which some rejected Jesus was the fact that he was from Nazareth, but that was a joke to some. Peter stands and says, Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What he's saying is that God actually bore witness to everyone that Jesus was the Christ. Through the miracles that he performed, through his authoritative teaching. And and Peter's saying no one could legitimately deny this. And so he adds, as you yourselves know. It's obvious on the surface that he was from God because look at the works that he did. Peter continues again preaching with uncharacteristic boldness. And in verse 23, he says, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
With that, Peter makes it clear that Jesus' death was God's plan from the beginning all along, yet men were still culpable for their rebellion, for their lawlessness. And at this point, the seriousness of what Peter's preaching, the seriousness of the actions of the Jews is really beginning to sink into their hearts. They're beginning to realize that they rejected and demanded the crucifixion of their own Messiah. And then Peter, with relentless authority, moves on to preach the resurrection. This Jesus whom they killed is alive. God raised him from the dead. He's now seated at uh, the right hand of the Father, sitting upon the throne of King David. They mocked him as the king of the Jews, and now he's exalted as the king of all creation. Peter then says something which must have struck like lightning in verse 34. This Jesus whom you crucified is now sitting with divine authority upon the throne of David until what? His enemies are made his footstool. Now, if you're guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ, if you're guilty of crucifying uh, uh, the Lord's Christ, and then you hear he's alive, and then you hear he's alive and he's on a throne, and then you hear he's alive and he's on a throne and he's going to reign until all of his enemies are his footstool, you're going to say, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because I've placed myself in a position as his enemy. Thousands of Jews there stood guilty before Peter. Naked and exposed, they made themselves enemies of the meek Messiah, subjecting him to their mockery and abuse, and now find themselves standing again exposed before him, not as the meek Messiah, but as the conquering king. Does Jesus have any evidence of the fact that Jesus is exalted? Yes. He says, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The evidence that Jesus has risen is what you're seeing right in front of you. The miraculous gift of tongues, people speaking the mighty works of God in languages they've never learned so everybody can hear in their own language, and the boldness of the preaching of Peter. This is the evidence. Jesus is alive and he's reigning. He was rejected, he's resurrected. What he's saying is that Jesus now possesses all authority, has proven it through the sending of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit which was empowering Peter's powerful sermon. And so now, Peter has the crowd, Peter has the crowd kind of in his authoritative grip, and he just squeezes even harder. Just in case the crowd had not yet connected all the dots, uh, Peter concludes here in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Jews were guilty. They were guilty of killing their own Messiah. In the face of undeniable evidence and continual confirmation from the Father, they despised and rejected Jesus. Now they stood before Peter, accused, exposed, and guilty. They were laid bare before the power and authority of the exalted Christ, whom they had crucified. And when they heard this, it says in verse 37, what? They were cut to the heart. Absolutely, utterly convicted. There's only one appropriate response to this, and they cry out, say, what, what do we do? What do we do? They're How do we respond? What do we do now? And Jesus says, brothers, I'm sorry, uh, Peter, Peter responds after they say, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
That's the right response. That's the only right response to the gospel. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, listen. It's an amazing scene. In that moment, as Peter and the other disciples are pre- uh, Peter's preaching and they're standing and they're sharing the authoritative gospel and they're declaring, if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you have to come through Jesus Christ. If you want to be one of God's children, you must be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The disciples here are able to stand and set the standard. This is how you enter in. Peter and the other disciples really stood at the door of the kingdom of heaven and were declaring to everyone who can come in and how you must come in. This was an incredible act of authority. Again, they set the standard for entrance into the kingdom, claiming that they're speaking for God himself. With divine authority, they set a new standard. If you are to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must come through Jesus Christ. You have to forget about relying upon ethnicity and religious identity or personal righteousness. Everybody who would come must come through Jesus. And so Peter proclaims, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, thousands of Jews respond. Thousands respond, they're baptized in the name of Christ, and these new believers recognized. They recognized that Peter and the other apostles did indeed speak for the resurrected Christ. They believed that they did have the message of salvation and that they really were standing at the gates of the kingdom of heaven. In this moment, an incredible shift has happened in God's administration of his kingdom on earth. It is now Jesus' disciples, soon to be called apostles, who had the power and authority over the kingdom of heaven. It was they who would have the authority to declare the means of salvation. They would have the authority to declare who had and who had not made a confession necessary to enter in. Be baptized. And they come and say, well, I want to be baptized. Have you believed in the Lord? Have you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, you cannot be baptized. You have? Yes, we baptize. These disciples who were the first to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Son, the Son of the living God, had become the foundation upon which Jesus Christ would build his church The thousands whom Jesus added to his church on this day would then devote themselves to what? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And so Jesus' church-building project was well underway here in Acts chapter 2 and continues to this day. The strong foundation of the apostles had been able and has been able to bear thousands of years and the addition of millions of confessors to this structure of the church. This morning, if you're a Christian, uh, having confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're part of that church. Let's define church, as we did last week or a couple weeks ago. A church is a group of baptized believers who regularly gather together in organized assemblies with a commitment to live out their discipleship together in the context of loving relationships, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, and the practice of the ordinances under the oversight of appointed leadership. That's just the type of church that you are a part of this morning. This is just the sort of church which was born after Peter's powerful sermon at Pentecost. So they devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And you know you continue on. They had all things common and so on. They had recognizable leadership in the apostles. They kept records of members. They had membership meetings even. They made collective decisions. This was a unique time in Acts chapter 2 after this new church was born because it's the only time where the universal church and the local church were one. That is, every believer in Jesus Christ there was present all at the same time there at Pentecost before persecution arose. 
And once persecution arose, all those believers scattered. What happened when all those believers scattered? The Bible says that other churches were planted. And now we have, yes, we can see the universal church visible in the local church in Acts chapter 2, but then we see God's plan develop a little bit further where we see, okay, his design then is for a series of local churches that develop somewhat independently in different geographic regions, and each of those local churches then are going to have identifiable leadership and identifiable membership and so on. And so God's design then is that his universal church be manifest on earth through local churches. The point of this message is for us to understand that even the local church, Calvary Baptist Church, Windsor, Ontario, this body of believers, is built upon that very same foundation of the apostles, which means we also then have the very same authority and responsibility that the apostles wielded there in Acts chapter 2. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 to Peter, I'm going to build my church, and how is he going to build it? Uh, Well, the tool that the apostles are going to have to build the church through Jesus Christ is the keys of the kingdom of heaven. With these keys, the apostles would be able to what? Bind and loose. They'd be able to speak with heavenly authority, make declarative statements about who is in the kingdom and who is out. Do that with heavenly affirmation. And so at Pentecost, the reason why it appeared that Peter was like standing at the gate of heaven, the gate of the kingdom of heaven. The reason why it appeared that Jesus Christ was, I'm sorry, that Peter was the doorkeeper of the kingdom is because that's actually how he was operating. He actually was the one setting the standard. This is the gospel. This is how you enter in. It's the apostles who could then determine who could be baptized and who could not. The reason it appeared that Peter and the apostles were standing at the gate of the kingdom of heaven, declaring who could get in and who could not, is that's exactly what they were doing. At that moment, Peter and the others were exercising the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They were binding on earth, and they were loosing on earth. And what Jesus said is, whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, we loose in heaven. What does that mean practically? Well, practically, it means they could baptize. You want to come to be baptized? Help us, to, help us to understand your profession of faith. Help me understand that you understand the gospel. Let me hear your confession of Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you don't get it right, we're not going to baptize. What is that? Exercising the keys of the kingdom. That's the authority and the responsibility to stand at the gate of the kingdom of heaven, that delegated authority that Jesus Christ has invested into his church built upon the foundation of the apostles. It's not as though the apostles were the ones doing the saving here, but they had the heavenly authority to declare who had been saved and who had not. They had the message of salvation. They had the authority to determine who had genuinely responded to it. They had the authority to make disciples. This was the power of the keys of the kingdom. And so the apostles became foundational to the church. They became foundational to the church that Jesus would build. His church, built upon the apostles, imbued with his authority, where kingdom matters were concerned. This means now practically, again, us. Us. The church has the authority to stand at the gate of the kingdom of heaven. You have the authority to declare the gospel. You have the authority to say to somebody, this is the right gospel and this is the wrong gospel. This is the confession that must be made. This is what genuine saving faith looks like. And we as a church then collectively have the authority to grant baptism to somebody who wants to come in. 
We then as a church has the authority to hear a profession of faith from somebody and to determine whether or not they should be added to the fellowship through church membership. What else does this mean? Well, all the way back to where we started in Matthew 18. It also means that the church has the authority and the responsibility wielding those keys of the kingdom, that authority over uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. It means that we also have the authority, if the time comes, and somebody who claims to be a believer refuses to repent of their sin, after having been approached by the one they've offended, then having been approached by one or two more and still refusing to repent, showing no evidence of genuine salvation by responding uh, to the actions of the church, it means that we also then have authority in such situations to what? Treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. When the gathered church comes together, it has authority to say, we see no evidence of genuine salvation. We then have authority to say, we have to remove you from the fellowship. We have the authority to say, we don't think your profession of faith is genuine. You say, well, how do you don't know their hearts? This is evidence-based here, and Jesus says, take these outward actions and compel and see if they will respond. And if there's genuine inward salvation, it'll respond to your outward uh, pressure. And if it doesn't, you can only judge based upon the actions. And based upon that, you may have to put one out of the fellowship. And Jesus says, you have all the authority to do this. And this is the local church. This is that group of baptized believers who regularly gather together in organized assemblies with a commitment to live out their discipleship together in the context of loving relationships, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayer and the practice of the ordinances under the oversight of appointed leadership. That's who we're talking about here. And understand that Matthew 18, church discipline, approaching a brother and bring it to the church and so on, that wouldn't make any sense, nor would it be wise to perform in any other context than the local church. In any other arrangement, this process laid out by Jesus in Matthew 18 would fail. Remember we said a couple weeks ago that in Matthew 18, when Jesus said, bring one or two witnesses and then tell it to the church. The language there in Matthew 18 really sounds kind of like a court, kind of like a deliberative body. This court-like language would make no sense without a gathered assembly to hear the evidence. This is the local church. Telling it to the church, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, would be ridiculous if it doesn't have the local church in view. This collective action of putting an unrepentant individual out of the fellowship doesn't make any sense unless he was first in an identifiable fellowship of believers. Lastly, in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus makes it explicit here. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. When the local church, built upon the foundation of the apostles, gathers together, it possesses the authority and responsibility to wield the keys of the kingdom, which means that collectively we have the authority to make declarative statements where professions of faith are concerned. The gathered church has the authority to stand at the gate of the kingdom of heaven. The gathered church has the authority to affirm professions of faith by permitting baptism. The gathered church has the authority to continually affirm the genuineness of professions of faith by administering the Lord's Supper. The church has the authority to refuse to continue to affirm professions of faith by exercising church discipline. 
These keys of the kingdom given by Jesus in Matthew 16 are shown to be exercised in Matthew 18, not by Peter, not by the apostles, but by the church. Then Matthew chapter 28, when the Great Commission is given, you see that we're given the authority, what? To go and to make disciples and to baptize. That's an incredible authority granted to the church. And again, we're not referring to a few select elders or some sort of religious hierarchy. We mean you, us, the congregation. When we gather collectively as one assembly, as the church, we have authority and we have responsibility. This is a shocking realization as we conclude here. What I've just said to you is that your church membership is not about consumerism. Your church membership is not about bouncing around trying to find whatever organization has the best amenities for you and your family. Your church membership is not about, oh, who's got the greatest youth group and who's got the greatest music and what worship is really, what style of worship is right down my... That's not what this is about. This is an incredible realization because the current Christian culture is one which has remade Christ's church from his very kingdom representatives on earth into nothing more than an entertainment-laden religious sideshow. What I'm saying to you this morning is that you are the ambassadors of Christ. You are called by Jesus Christ himself to do that hard work of administrating the kingdom of heaven on earth by exercising the keys of the kingdom when you gather collectively with your fellow believers. And so, as we baptize... One of the things that we are going to do uh, is share the profession of faith with those who are being baptized with you. So if you have some objection and say, well, wait a second, I, I, don't, I have a question about their profession of faith. It doesn't seem like they quite got the gospel right here. We have the authority to withhold baptism and the authority to baptize. It means that as we welcome people into church membership, and they write out their salvation testimony, you have a responsibility and authority then to look over that testimony or to talk to this person and say, you know what? I'm I'm pleased with their testimony of salvation. Let's welcome them into membership. I have questions about their, their testimony. Let's have a discussion about this so that we can nail it down before we welcome them into membership. It also means that you have the authority and responsibility when an unrepentant brother or sister reveals themselves to be an unbeliever. In our midst, you have the authority and responsibility to take action collectively than to say, this person must be put out. So we are the ambassadors of the king, administrators of the kingdom of heaven on earth, entrusted with the authority and responsibility to administer the kingdom here while we await the future coming of the king himself. And so I hope if you're a member of Calvary Baptist Church, you understand your calling. If you're considering becoming a member of Calvary Baptist Church, I hope you understand what you're signing up for. This is the church of Jesus Christ, and we do church his way, exercising his authority and fulfilling the responsibilities that he's granted to us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for, again, your wise design for the church. And Lord, we just pray for your grace this morning. I understand that that was a, quite a bit. and That was like a wall of words for some people, trying to discern everything that was being said there. So we just pray for your grace this morning. Help us. Uh, to be moved by your word, especially those who are Christians and who are members of the church. Help us to understand just what a calling we have as your people. Help us to understand that we're here not to consume, uh, but we are here as those who are part of your household. We are part of your church that you are building. 
We are your ambassadors. We are those whom you have entrusted, to whom you have entrusted the keys of the kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your wisdom and the design for the church. We understand that it's not any of us as individuals who have the power and authority to wield the keys, but we collectively as a church body. So we thank you for your wise design and your wisdom. Help us now to be faithful. Help us to preach the gospel clearly. Help us to administer baptism to genuine believers. Help us to refuse baptism to those who are not genuine believers. Help us be wise when it comes to church membership, taking in those who are genuine believers. Help us to not be adverse to exercising even church discipline when necessary. Help us to do so with a spirit of humility, gentleness, ready to forgive, ready to bestow grace. Nevertheless, help us to take the hard action necessary because you've given us that authority and responsibility. So help us, if need be, to remove the man or woman from our midst who proves themselves to be an unbeliever. Help us do it with grace. Help us do it with mercy. Help us be ready at any moment to respond to genuine repentance with full restoration. Nevertheless, we're your church, so help us to exercise that difficult action if necessary. Help us be faithful to it. Lord, we know there's always going to be weeds among the wheat, and there's always going to be goats among the sheep, and so we're not beyond understanding that there are going to be some who are members who reveal themselves to be unbelievers. Help us, Lord, to um, promote and to live out a culture in the church that seeks holiness so that the lukewarm, genuine believer is provoked to full devotion, and so that the cold, false convert is exposed, feels uncomfortable, either comes to genuine repentance, or maybe has to be placed out of the fellowship. So help us to protect against lukewarmness and fulfill our responsibilities of the church, being always reminded that this is not ours. This is your church, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things, Jesus Christ himself building. So help us to operate as proper stewards and ambassadors. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray for any of this morning who are not yet believers. Lord, we know you're still building your church. You're still adding men and women to your church. And so we pray for these this morning who have not yet come to Jesus, that they would understand their need for salvation, that they too would confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, embracing him as their own Savior and submitting to him as their own Lord. We pray that these would be saved, added to the church, and that they could join our fellowship. Lord, we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.